Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Well, staying with uh, social media songs, that one is certainly sounding pretty familiar. Uh, songs from artists such as Taylor Swift, The Weeknd and Drake are set to disappear from TikTok. Universal Music is planning to pull millions of its tracks from the platform after talks about payments broke down. Now, Universal has accused TikTok of bullying, saying the company wanted to pay what it calls a fraction of the rate that other sites do. TikTok, which has more than a billion users, said Universal was presenting a, quote, false narrative and rhetoric. The contract between TikTok and Universal is set to expire today. We're joined now by Rolling Stone senior writer Brittany Spanos. Uh, good morning. Welcome to the programme. Uh, tell us Thanks more. Thanks for having me. What, why has Universal decided to pull their music, catchy as it is? <laughs> um, it's really just because of how much of the music is used on TikTok. Of course, this is a big function of TikTok is the the dances that have blown up on it. Um, the users use these songs in every video. And Universal is um, saying that they, they want to be able to get more of a, a bigger payout from from the amount that TikTok is using this music in the same way that uh, a movie or a TV show uses music or any other kind of form. I mean, is that fair? Is Universal, you know, do they not get paid enough? Yeah, I mean, for uh, this has been an issue since the beginning of streaming. And this is particularly for artists that um, have not been getting paid enough through streaming services. And now through TikTok, um, Universal claims that only 1% of their revenue comes from TikTok. Um, And, you know, this is as more and more sites and social media platforms and streaming services come up, um, we're seeing the the payout for artists in particular dwindling and dwindling. Um, So, Universal is really using this as a way to, I mean, I hope fighting for their artists who deserve to have a bigger buy, bigger payout from sites like this. Yeah, as you mentioned, the music is a huge part of TikTok. How has TikTok responded? So TikTok has claimed that um, because of their function, because it's not typically the full song being used on the platform, it's not typically even the original version of the song being used on the platform. It's really a marketing tool, which is a a pretty fair argument from TikTok. It is a a pretty incredible marketing tool for artists. I mean, we've seen a lot of independent artists and um, really new and and rising artists benefit from their song going viral on TikTok. So that is their argument and kind of pushing it back against Universal's decision. And so are there sort of, yeah, well, like copyright issues around whether you have a different version of a song or a slowed down version of a song or just a little snippet of a song, whether they still, you know, can get paid for that? Yeah, I mean, because of all the way that sounds are, the way that sounds function on TikTok, you have the official version that is uploaded by the by the artist or by the label um, or and by their publisher. But then there are also versions that are kind of user generated, user created, whether that's, um, you know, a a cover of a song, or that's just kind of a a funny mashup of these songs. So that line tends to get blurred and also dilute a lot of the payout that labels can get from 
their music being on TikTok. Sure. Okay. So the contract is due to expire today. Uh, so what will happen? Will the music just suddenly disappear or could they get back around the, the bargaining table around this? I mean, I'm sure that they're going to try to get back to the bargaining table. I mean, this would be a big loss for both. And it's really unclear who's going to suffer more from it. I mean, TikTok does have billions of users, but Universal has some really massive names in music. I mean, Taylor Swift, uh, Billie Eilish, Olivia Rodrigo. I mean, these are artists that their music is a big a big part of the fabric of TikTok and of what their users listen to and like. So, you know, I I would assume that they would try to work hard today to try to get to an agreement, but it's really about who blinks first. Hey, thank you very much for that. It is an interesting one indeed. The death toll in Israel's continued bombardment of Gaza is nearing 27,000. Another 150 Palestinians have been killed in the last 24 hours. This comes as the UN tries to shore up support for their relief and works agency in Palestine. After a number of countries withdrew support following allegations, a dozen UNRWA employees were involved in the October 7 attacks. Now, The UN's humanitarian coordinator for Gaza says it's vital for UNRWA to be able to continue with its work. There's no substitution for the humanitarian role that is played in Gaza. We need to all ramp up given the totality of needs and the scale and the complexity of the crisis, but there's no substitution. There is no way... Uh, any organization can replace or substitute the tremendous capacity, the fabric of UNRWA, the ability uh, and their knowledge of the population in Gaza. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is vowing to continue the offensive in Gaza. That's despite pressure from the families of hostages and the international community to reach a ceasefire deal with Hamas. Meanwhile, the IDF has confirmed that they are flooding tunnels in Gaza with seawater to attack what Israel says is a militant infrastructure. Now, earlier I spoke to our correspondent in Tel Aviv, Sarah Coates. These reports have been circulating for months now. It's been somewhat of an open secret But look, scientists are extremely worried that pumping this water from the Mediterranean into these tunnels could actually damage the underground water table and contaminate what little water is in the Strip right now. We do need to remember that uh, people in the Strip have been reporting drinking dirty, contaminated water, uh, water that already tastes salty. So this is extremely concerning, but there are also concerns that if chemicals are potentially being stored in these tunnels, that flooding them out could potentially burst whatever they're being stored in uh, and that the chemicals could then leak into the soil, which would have lasting implications. But then there's the, uh, the plight of the hostages. Many of the recently released hostages have detailed that they were held in tunnels. So there is a widespread belief here in Israel that many of these 130 or so captives are being held underground. And there are fears, of course, from their families and the wider community that flushing these tunnels out with seawater could not only flush out or kill Hamas fighters, that it could kill their loved ones. Mm. So a lot of concern here in Israel. Mm. What about the humanitarian situation there at the moment? And of course, uh, more pressure there with questions around the funding for Anwar. Yeah, certainly. Well, look, the humanitarian situation, it remains absolutely grim. Uh, We do need to remember that there are around 1.8 million people that have been pushed down into this southern area, these areas that the IDF calls safe zones. 
uh, but there's not enough for them there. It is freezing cold. It's been raining for more than a week now. It's storming. So this is what is being felt in Gaza. We do need to remember that these people, many of these people don't even have a makeshift tent. And aid agencies have been saying that there are just so many people down in this so-called safe zone that there's simply not enough room to even put up tents. So you need to just imagine these people are sleeping out on the street in storms, in the freezing cold. Uh, we're hearing disease is spreading. There's simply not enough food to go around. So that's extremely concerning, as are these allegations being directed at that UN body, UNRWA, which is the largest body that works in the Strip. But look, Israeli officials, uh, they are now, now coming out to, to say that uh, they don't want this uh, aid agency, UNRWA, to stop working in the Strip in the short term, because what that could then do is uh, stop the operation, of course, which could mm. cause a humanitarian catastrophe worse than what's being seen now. That was our correspondent in Tel Aviv, Sarah Coates. The recently rebranded Woolworths is also revamping its loyalty program, claiming customers will benefit from targeted ads based on information collected about them. Now, Everyday Rewards is replacing the old one card, favouring a more involved app with a digital card and personalised deals. Consumer New Zealand has long criticised supermarkets for selling data collected through these loyalty schemes, as well as luring shoppers into phony member-only deals. Chief Executive John Duffy joins us now. Uh, kia ora, good morning, John. What is wrong with these loyalty cards? Well, generally speaking, they can deceive consumers into thinking they get a, getting a better deal than they actually are. So we, we did some research late last year looking at a, a range of about 50 products, and for three quarters of them, you could find those products either cheaper or the same price at uh, a, a supermarket like the warehouse or, or a pack and save that don't operate a loyalty scheme, uh, cheaper or the same price as the, the um, loyalty discount you're getting at either um, um, New World or Countdown at the time. Uh, okay, but what about the points that you get? If you're going to be buying those products anyway, you get some points and you get some money off next time round or maybe at the petrol station. Yes, yeah, so those those points can be used to, to make purchases. That's that's quite right. But there is a trade-off here that, that consumers need to be aware of. They are providing their data to um, both foodstuffs and Woolworths, who then in turn use that data both to market back to them and for their own purposes. So they can monetize that data to make even more profit off you when you when you use your loyalty card. So as long as you're aware of that and you're okay with that. Is there any other issue? No, there isn't. As long as as long as what that use is is disclosed to people and they freely enter into that kind of agreement, that's fine. But what what we see is that that actually people don't realise that there's this entire data ecosystem um, going on behind the scenes. And you know, if you have a, a a quick scan, we haven't looked at it in detail yet because it's very new. But if you have a quick scan of uh, Woolworths' new program, it's actually quite a significant expansion of the the data use behind the scenes. So the number of parties that they can provide uh, your information to, and when you think about it, it's actually quite intimate information. It's If you regularly shop at the same uh, Woolworths, it's everything that you buy for your family. So, you know, you can actually glean an enormous amount about a person from what's in their weekly shop. If people just reflect on what goes into their supermarket trolley, it's, it's quite a bit. Equally, they're, they're talking about um, gathering um, video camera footage of, of people, uh, noting people's uh, 
license plates uh, that they use uh, on the car that they use to come to the supermarket. So there's a huge amount of data here uh, that they can then use, potentially sell to other parties or use to market things back to you, particularly when you're, if you're shopping online. Thank you very much for that. Uh, that was Chief Executive of Consumer New Zealand, John Duffy, about the uh, perils, as uh, they see it, of these uh, loyalty schemes. And you're listening to Morning Report. Winston Peters and Judith Collins will today attend the first meeting between both the Foreign and Defence Ministers of New Zealand and Australia. The pair travelled to Melbourne last night for the significant sit-down where it's expected conflicts in the Middle East and the Defence Agreement AUKUS will be among topics discussed. I spoke to our political reporter Katie Scotcher about what will be a fast turnaround trip for the Ministers. Yeah, so it's going to be a a bit of a whirlwind trip. It starts off with a very quick stop at a uh, defence technology event. Defence Minister Judith Collins will be popping in there. And then uh, both Ms Collins and the Foreign Minister Winston Peters will be greeted by their Australian counterparts. So that's Foreign Minister Penny Wong, Defence Minister Richard Miles, and they'll be officially welcomed to Melbourne. Uh, And then the rolling series of meetings will begin. So first there will be separate meetings between the two defence ministers and the two foreign ministers. And then all four ministers will meet together for the first time. Uh, It should come as no surprise that the topics discussed will include the AUKUS agreement, uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine, the war between Israel and Hamas, and of course the uh, Houthi attacks on the Red Sea. Now both New Zealand and Australia have backed the US-led strikes in response to the Houthi attacks and both have deployed personnel to the Red Region in response. Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong has also just returned from a trip to the Middle East. She visited Israel and the West Bank, so there will be lots to discuss between the four ministers. Yeah, I mean, it seems unusual for both these ministers to be going together. What is the significance of, of all four ministers really meeting? Yeah, so this is actually the first time it has happened. It's something that Australia has done with other countries, but not New Zealand. Uh, And back in December last year, our Prime Minister Christopher Luxon and Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese agreed that their Ministers of Foreign Affairs and Defence would hold a joint meeting early this year. Obviously, there's a lot of crossover between those two portfolios. Uh, And Christopher Luxon and Winston Peters have really stressed since the formation of the coalition government that they want to bring a new sense of urgency to New Zealand's uh, presence on the world stage. Christopher Luxon has said he wants to boost New Zealand's defence relationship with Australia. And Mr Peters has also made clear since becoming Foreign Minister that he wants to draw New Zealand closer to its traditional partners. So this meeting between the four ministers is essentially seen as a a step towards uh, those goals. And what about AUKUS, which I guess looms large, and whether or not New Zealand might join Pillar 2 of that, is that likely to be discussed? The agreement will definitely be discussed. Uh, So that's the defence agreement between the UK, the US and Australia that will eventually see Australia uh, be supplied with nuclear submarines. New Zealand has made it very clear that it won't get involved in that part of the agreement agreement because of our nuclear-free status. But there is this mysterious second pillar uh, that New Zealand is interested in, and that is focused on defence technology. And the coalition government has 
has expressed interest in signing up to this. But at the moment, there's very little information about what exactly that second pillar involves. So Judith Collins has said that it could potentially help New Zealand and Australia's militaries work together. Winston Peters says the government needs to find out more details before getting involved. Uh, So we are expecting some discussion today, but no major movements in terms of New Zealand's involvement with AUKUS during this visit. And that was Katie Scotcher, our reporter, who is in Melbourne. We'll have uh, more throughout the day on those uh, meetings. Documents show defence officials uh, have for months been promoting the benefits of joining the AUKUS Military Alliance. Uh, Let's hear more on this now from reporter Phil Pennington, who's been looking into this issue. Good morning, Phil. Morning, Ekron. Okay, so you've got a bunch of OIA documents, have you, on this issue? That's right. What are they? What is the thrust of them? What are they? What are they suggesting? Well, we know, of course, the AUKUS deal has pillars one and two. Pillar one is the nuclear side of it for Australia and the US with the submarines. Pillar two is non-nuclear, but that's about basically accelerating the development and sharing between the partners of advanced military technology and you've got things in there these papers show eight different areas um, cyber electronic warfare information sharing uh, hypersonics and drones um, and I hasten to add that at the same time as this is going on NZDF Defence Force just signed a big deal for drones multi-million dollar deal for uh, between 50 and 75 new really high tech drones three which, which have we, as we have seen in the Ukraine mm. and arguably in other places uh, that has become the real focus of modern warfare. Yes, thousands of drones being used in the Ukraine which has inspired the US to begin what's called the Replicator pro- Project as a concept where they've talked about flooding the Indo-Pacific region with thousands of cheap drones, that this is a a real step change. It's not guaranteed they're going to do it because lots of things get floated at the Pentagon and never happen. But that is what they're saying. Australia has made noises that they're on side of that, as has Japan. NZDF told me in December that they're not part of Replicator yet. Hazen to add, this is not about Pillar 2, but it does align with Pillar 2. What we have here is we're following the breadcrumbs in these OIAs, and the breadcrumbs lead... To, and when you put the drone deal as part of that and our involvement with a hypersonics, we're aligned. If we want to join Pillar 2, we have something to bring to the table and we're getting into alignment with that. What you see in these documents is that the officials at Defence have been talking to the previous government in a five-page document which is headed Opportunities for New Zealand uh, Research and uh, Industry Community um, about the opportunities. Unfortunately, one of them illuminative things about this OIA is that it's nearly all redacted. So in other words, we know they're talking about it, but we don't know what they're talking about. We don't know what the pros are, and we certainly don't know what the cons are or what they're talking about in terms of the cons. Mm. Well, I mean, we, we can hear from the Defence Minister shortly, but obviously the, the cons might be a geopolitical uh, a geopolitical nature in the relationship with China and how they would react if New Zealand joined up formally to AUKUS. And these papers are in another paper that's about changing New Zealand's approach on AUKUS and there's the states from last March. This gets to that in the set doesn't talk China but it says that we need to recalibrate the key message to show that we accept the rationale for AUKUS which is that the strategic environment in our region is deteriorating. That's the word deteriorating. So in other words it's deteriorating it's getting worse therefore we need AUKUS AUKUS Pillar 1 which is the nuclear subs for Australia but for New Zealand AUKUS Pillar 2. So that's what's on the line and on the table in Melbourne, we expect. Um, It is hard to tell where we're at, whether this is early days or late days. I mean, all politicians of lots of stripes are on board with this. 
uh, Chris Hipkins, Christopher Luxon, Judith Collins. Winston Peters has uh, signalled a greater note of caution that we need to make sure this is in our national interest. But a lot of talk about us joining, not actually clear what that means, but we do know what Pillar 2 is about. It is accelerating. So as an example of that, last April, the three big partners, they ran the biggest drone test under Pillar 2 in the UK, swarms of drones that for the first time in flight were talking to each other and it says in the documents, recalibrating targets as they went. So this is not just about defensive capabilities mm. at all, it is about combat It's really defensive. interesting because in the past we might have thought about, oh, do our ships work together? Can we have a, we've got some planes now that are interoperable as they call it, the, uh, the Poseidons. Uh, but this is really about new technology and this mm. is where Pillar 2 and we do have a space industry, right? I mean, we do yes, have Judith, technology to bring mm, to the table, right? Judith Collins spoke to the Australian media yesterday about that when she said we might have the hypersonic stuff to bring to the table because we have the rocket launch experience, which we do through Rocket Lab. And Rocket Lab already has a lot um, contracts with the Pentagon around hypersonics. Um, so, as I say, there's some alignment there. Um, interoperability is a big one, um, and... Ms. Collins, she stressed that I've asked and asked her, but also Defence Force came back last night to say, yes, interoperability. They weren't able, though, to say whether the drone deal that they've done, which is with three big contractors um, for about between 50 and 70 drones of three different types, whether that is guaranteed for interoperability. So what we've got here is we are seemingly on the verge of Pillar 2, but the dilemma there, of course, is where would the money come from to get into this? Well, I was just going to finish We can hardly keep our old technology going. Ships are going down. We have to spend a billion dollars on naval helicopters, and we don't have the people, the personnel, defence personnel, to run them. So that's the real irony and dilemma of this thing, that we should be discussing joining an alliance that is focused on advanced military technologies when we can't keep the old stuff going. Very good. Thank you very much for that. That is Phil Pennington there, our, our reporter, who's been looking at documents around the AUKUS uh, proposal or idea. And joining us now from Melbourne is Defence Minister Judith Collins. Uh, kia ora, good morning, Minister. Oh, good morning, Ingrid. Very early morning for you. I know over there in Melbourne. Uh, right, and a big day ahead. Well, let's start with AUKUS. You've indicated you support New Zealand joining Pillar 2 of the AUKUS military alliance. It does sound like momentum is growing there. Is it just a matter of time? Well, I think I really said that we've, I support us finding whether or not we can uh, join AUKUS 2, but also, if so, what does that mean for us? because obviously there would be um, implications that we need to actually work through. So so the partners uh, to AUKUS obviously themselves trying to work out how it is that New Zealand and other uh, similar countries might want to join in and what that means. So it's still pretty early days when it comes to just what that means and obviously it's all anything we do needs to be in New Zealand's best interest. Yeah, well you have been talking about this for a while though, so how far yeah. down that path are we? I mean, what do we know about if we can and what the requirements would be? Uh, we've still got quite a long way to go before we can work that all through and and remember too is that um, this is not just about us deciding to be part of it, it really is very dependent on the three parties to AUKUS deciding that New Zealand and other countries can join. But I think that there is a willingness to certainly speak to us about it and see how it is that we can add in to the mix. What what would what could we offer 
uh, in terms of uh, Pillar 2? Yes, so there's obviously quite a lot of technological advancement in New Zealand, particularly uh, in the space area, but, um, and I just heard the report from Phil Pennington. Uh, Phil's correct that we have a lot to offer. The issue is, is that what is wanted and also uh, what does that cost? So there's all of those things. So there's still, it's, I'm sorry to be vague, but it's actually just a very vague area at the moment while things are still getting worked through. But have we been told that we can join? No, we've been told that um, parties are very willing to see whether or not there is a, a very good opportunity for us to join. Yeah, so, so, so the been, US has said though, haven't they, that we can join and it sounds like we have uh, some of the capability that would be welcome. So what's the hold up? Well, the US is, uh, has said quite rightly that um, Secretary Blinken has said that the door is open, but we need to work out quite what that means for us and we also need to know what we can bring to the party and that is very important. You know, you've got to bring your food to the party, don't you? And that's what, what we are working through. So when it comes to the technology and the technological side, there's lots of things that I know are going on and I'm sure people in the sector do, but it's not it's not um, it's not in our New Zealand's best interest to be running through those or to be discussing them right at the moment. Will they be discussed at today's meeting? Meetings? Oh, well, I think there'll be quite a lot discussed today, um, but a lot of what today will be is, I've got to say, is, it's going to be very confidential because there will be some very obviously uh, good and frank discussions about the possibilities of what we can bring. And you mentioned confidentiality, but in terms of the New Zealand public being aware of the the risks or the pros and cons of joining AUKUS and and strengthening cooperation with uh, with these allies, you know, will will they get told about that? Of course, and I think that's incredibly important. Is that whatever we do has to be in the best interests of New Zealanders, and New Zealanders need to know uh, what that means. And we're just still working through quite what that means um, because we've just got to get this full understanding about what is wanted from us and what we can actually uh, deliver. So the New Zealand public is, you know, living in a liberal democracy is a wonderful thing and the New Zealand public absolutely will know. Currently, what what is your understanding of the risks or advice that you've received in terms of the risks of uh, our relationship with China and New Zealand's reputation of joining a military alliance, which does have a nuclear faction? I know we're not talking about joining up to that part of it, but the links are still obvious. Well, like any other country, we have our own independent foreign policy, and that means is that we always have to look and weigh weigh up the pros and cons. But obviously, um, we have a very strong relationship with China, particularly economically, and we will continue to do our very best to make sure that we engage very positively and consistently and predictably with China, and that's what we do. Um, But that also means that we also have other areas that we need to work on. And one of those areas is that um, our defence capability, our defence has been absolutely gutted in the last three years. And we've got to build that back. We're also going to have to cut, are you going to have to cut 6 or 7% from the cost of that? Oh, well, I think we've had a lot of discussion in the media about the fact that defence is going to have to find 
at savings. I've asked defence to look for anything that they believe is any wastage whatsoever. But at the same time, uh, it's no secret that we have a working on the capability plan and uh, and that later this year we will have some really good idea about what we need to spend and what we need to commit to, particularly in capital. That was uh, Defence Minister Judith Collins uh, live there from Melbourne where a number of meetings will be happening between the Ministers of Defence and Foreign Affairs, uh, Australian and New Zealand. A former police officer says the compulsory fitness test is too hard and needs to change if police want to recruit and retain more frontline staff. Other officers, both former and current, agree. Now, the government's acknowledged it's going to be hard to deliver on the coalition agreement to train 500 new officers within two years, with the Minister Mark Mitchell saying it would be three years and then having to recommit to two. Uh, Rachel Haler Donaldson reports. Former police officer Gavin Benny says the physical competency test, or PCT, which police college students must pass to graduate, has never been fit for purpose, and many other ex-cops agree. One of the task for the PCT is climbing over a wall and most of our old cops on there never had to climb over a wall that high and, and, and the police drag a body like they do and, um, and and always think and especially with the body armour that they're carrying now, they'd never be able to do that. Mr Benny says a test is needed but it must be relevant and shouldn't include scaling a two and a half metre high wall. Once they've qualified, officers also have to regularly reset the test. Police Association President Chris Carhill says it involves a combination of tasks that must be completed within a set period of time, depending on age. It's a 200-metre run, pushing it a heavy trailer, carrying a um, spare tyre, walking a, a beam, leaping some um, a ditch or equivalent of a ditch gap, climbing through some windows, over a fence, dragging a body. Gavin Benny says a number of officers have been injured doing the test. Chris Carhill says figures from 2020 show there were 108 injuries, but it's likely the number of minor accidents is higher. The association says it does as much as it can to ensure people can stay. One police officer seriously hurt her knee, leaping across a ditch. But they could do everything else. And so we would say that it's ridiculous to say they couldn't be in the police simply because of that. Um, when the, so as long as the other... Standards were met, we believe that was appropriate that they remained. And that was the case. Chris Carhill says every year about three to four staff who have been injured on the job have to leave because they can't pass the test. Asked if it should be made easier, he says it has been peer-reviewed and deemed fit for purpose. But he says it's a divisive issue. And there's very strong polar views on whether it's relevant, and especially someone who's been in the police a long time can clearly show they do their job might have had an injury that's had you know, some permanent repercussions and those sorts of things. It should not be able to be a PCT, you know, cause them to have to lose their job. Gavin Benny says change is urgently needed in the police force to attract more recruits and that needs to come from the very top. So could Police Minister Mark Mitchell, a former dog handler who was also in the armed defenders, still pass the fitness test? With his age, he probably only has to touch the wall these days. So well, I, I think over over a certain age, you're allowed to touch the wall instead of climbing it. So, yeah, he'd probably do it OK, I would think. Chris Carhill points out that the police need some sort of test to ensure all officers are fit for frontline duty, as was the case in 2022 with the protests at Parliament. He says officers who can show they're trying to get over their injuries have the best chance of staying on.
Rachel Hellyer-Donaldson reporting there. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 